This week we have Parshas Bahaloscha. It's the third section of the Book of Numbers, which is the fourth of five books. So we're mostly, most of the way done, finishing the whole Torah. So this week is uh, Parshas Bahaloscha. Bahaloscha means when you shall kindle. You shall, it literally means when you shall lift. And a very interesting, very diverse Parsha. Lots of really interesting uh, mitzvos. And also, we get back to some really striking narrative, some stories. So the parsha begins with the discussion of, of the menorah. A menorah, we've mentioned it several times before. Menorah, of course, looks like a menorah. It had three branches on each side, not four like we have in our menorah. And it was lit in the temple every day. And it begins, speak to Aaron, when you light the menorah, then they should all point towards the middle. So the three on each side, the three on the right point to the left towards the middle, and the three on the left point to the right towards the middle. Now, why exactly how this falls in in the middle of the, I guess it's part of the long discussion of the inauguration of the Mishkan. Uh, last week we had the Nisim, the, the princes of the tribes. Each one of them brought a very, um, uh, a very generous offering for the Mishkan. Rashi tells us that when Aaron who was from the tribe of Levi, the Levite tribe, who's a coin, which is a, a, a small subsession of the Levite tribe, when he sees all the offerings of the Nisim, of the princes of all the other tribes, the tribe of Levi does not, not represent it, he gets upset, and he gets saddened a little bit. So the Almighty tells Moshe, you go tell Aaron, there's a special mitzvah that's only for you, only for the family of the Kohens within the Levites. Uh, the Ramban, interestingly, what he does here. Uh, he says that this event in the Torah, when it talks about inaugurating, ceremony of inaugurating the temple, and then right away it talks about the menorah, says the Ramban, that's a prophetic prediction for an event that's going to happen a thousand years hence, uh, which is the story of Hanukkah. When the Greeks came and they defiled the temple, and then the Kohanes, the, the Hasmoneans, the family of the descendants of Aaron, they came and they reinaugurated the temple, which is the word Hanukkah, means reinauguration. And they, of course, they had the miracle of the menorah. That is hinted over here because Aaron was disappointed. He, he didn't feel like he had so much of a place in the inauguration of the first temple, says, or the first Mishkan, uh, the Almighty comfort him, comforts him that sometime in the future, your descendants will have a uh, a very strong portion in reinauguration of the second temple. Now, so Aaron did exactly the way he was instructed. That's verse number three, and uh, Rashi tells us that this is praising Aaron. Aaron did exactly the way he was instructed, and of course, it's a little surprising, right? If the Almighty gives you an instruction. And you follow the instruction, we don't necessarily need to clap for you, right? Who, who's to think that who, – who would even entertain the notion of changing? Now, I think the fact that the Torah goes out of its way to praise Aaron for doing just what he was told, it shows that there's a human tendency, and certainly with regards to spiritual matters – to add a little bit of your own, to put a little flavor of your own in something. And when you're told to do something in a very specific way and you do exactly the way you're told and you don't add, that indeed is praiseworthy. And the uh, Torah recaps exactly how the menorah was made. 
And if you look at verse number four, it seems uh, a little bit kind of inartful verbiage here. Um, it says that uh, the, the menorah was all hammered out. So you had a big block of gold and you hammered it out. You didn't form it from various parts to weld together. It was hammered out of one block of gold. But then it adds, the verse adds kind of curiously, according to the vision that Hashem showed Moshe, so did he make the menorah. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, it's not clear who he made the menorah. Who's this he? Is this Moshe? Is this God? As the vision that Hashem showed Moshe, it's not so clear. So Rashi actually tells us that uh, the menorah was actually made on its own. Is that Moshe just took all the gold and what was very hard for him to visualize the way the menorah looks like and he just he just dumped it into a fire and that emerged. That's what the Midrash tells us. And my grandfather, blessed memory, he, he used to say is that Moshe, he, Moshe was very talented, of course, after all. He could have made the menorah, but what he didn't quite get was the spiritual meaning behind it and therefore it had to be made by God. Okay, so that's the, the beginning of the parasha and we continue discussing uh, the next stage of consecration of the Levites. We had a little bit last week. The Levites were the three families of Levites, Gersh, Krasim, Merari. They were given various responsibilities of what they needed to carry. Uh, they were in charge of the transportation and maintenance of the Mishkan. And uh, that was a job originally for the firstborn. And then with the sin of the golden calf, the firstborn lost it. And last week was transferred to the Levites. And this week they're going to be prepared with a special process and procedure uh, to work and do their job in the temple. What's the job? They have to have various water sprinkle of them and they have to shave their entire body. They have to take their garments and dump it in the mikvah and then they're pure and they bring various sacrifices. That's what it says. The first time, the first week of the inauguration of the Mishkan, all the Levites had every single hair on their body shaved. Now, normally, there are some hairs, we learned already in Leviticus, there are some hairs you're not allowed to shave, but this is an example of when there's a positive commandment that's in conflict with a negative commandment, the positive commandment almost always trumps. So if there's a positive commandment to cut off all the hair, almost always, yes. There's a positive commandment to cut off all the hair, and therefore, there's an, even though there's a negative commandment prohibiting that or certain hairs... Uh, that is moved away to fulfill this mitzvah. Why do they need to have their hair cut? So it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting comment that we find. Rashi tells us that this is to provide atonement. Uh, we read a few weeks ago in the book of Leviticus about the mitzora. Mitzora, someone who did one of several sins. There's a whole list of them in the Talmud. Most famously, of course, is speaking Lashon Ra, speaking negatively about other people. And he becomes like a pariah. His face turns, his skin turns white. He has to get sent out of the camp. And the process of him purif- purifying himself, they have to cut off all the hair. And the deep esoteric meanings behind that, there's a lot of meanings in hair. For example, you remember with Esau, when he was born, the Torah describes that he was very hairy. And the idea of hair is that hair captures everything. If you have, like, there's dust in the hair, it's always going to get caught up. And the idea, 
symbolic idea of here is that all sins get captured by it. So when a Mitzorah is trying to purify himself, they cut off all their hair. As that, that's the kind of the deep meaning that all the commentaries discuss. And therefore, uh, because the Levites, their stand-ins for the firstborn, and the firstborn, they would have had this responsibility in this position, but they lost it because of the golden calf. And now there's a stand-in for them. Therefore, the Levites, they go through an atonement process for the firstborn, and that includes cutting off all the hair. That's what Rashi is. It's an interesting idea. You gather all the Levites, bring them before Israel. This is very interesting process where Aaron lifts up the Levites, each one individually. This is 22,000. The Talmud talks about the prodigious strength that Aaron was given on this one day to take 22,000 people and lift them up. Lift them in the air to kind of similar to what we do with a Torah scroll. You lift a Torah scroll up in the air. It's a kind of elevation of its stature. Moshe does that as well. Uh, The Levites are separated. They're consecrated. And once this process is done, they are allowed to do uh, work in the temple. They're allowed to sing. One of their responsibilities was to sing. Interestingly, uh, what's the origin of the songs of the Levites? We know the Levites, they had songs in the temple. Uh, where did these? So, who who were the composers? Who were the arrangers of these songs? So, our uh, sources tell us, and say, just tell us that when Moshe uh, at Sinai, so he goes up to heaven and he spends forty days in heaven, and he has all these negotiations and negotiations and interactions with angels. Talmud says that the angels, for example, were very hesitant that Torah, a heavenly Torah, should be given to mortal men, and Moshe had to argue with them and try to. And Moshe was terrified. He tells God, well, they're going to incinerate me. So he says, grab onto my chair. Very interesting Gemaras uh, regarding what happened to Moshe when he was in heaven. But the sources say, Moshe's in heaven and he hears songs of the angels. And he comes down and he teaches them to his brethren, the Levites, and they... When they, in the temple, they sing those songs. And then, of course, you know, we've, we've been speaking about the tap, tabernacle in the temple for months already. But the, the idea is that it's a touch point of two worlds. It's a physical world that's intersecting with the spiritual world. And that is very apropos, the idea that the songs of the heavens, of the angels, there's one place that we can draw it down, and that's the tabernacle. There was this tradition that the song that the Kohanim, the Kohanim's sing during the Berchas Kohanim, the blessing of the Kohanim's, is actually the same song that was sung, or one of the songs that was sung in the temple. That's the tradition. Um, I, it's, you know, in, in Israel, they say the Berchas Kohanim every day, but there's no songs. It's chit-chat, as they say, uh, as opposed to, let's say, here, we just had this, we just celebrated the holiday, the festival of Shavuos last week. And everyone in the world, during the festivals, when the Kohanes, when the Kohanim get up and they give the bracha, the, the berchas Kohanim, uh, they sing a song, three songs. So it's the same tune, but they sing three times over the course of the three verses of the Kohanic blessing that we actually saw last week. 
And there is this tradition that that song that they hum is actually a song brought all the way back from the temple times. That's a tradition. I don't think it's been sourced. It's kind of one of those hard things to source. It's not sort of text-based. Um, but uh, who knows? Who knows what those songs were? So, verse 17, very important verse here. Well, every, every verse is important, but a very interesting verse here. Uh, when the Almighty is kind of recapping this whole transaction that happened, the firstborns, they were mine when I, when I had smitten every firstborn of Egypt. Then they became holy. But then verse 18 says, I took the Levites in their stead instead of the firstborn. Now, what does the fact that the Almighty smiting the Egyptians have to do with the Almighty taking the firstborn of the Jews? It doesn't seem to be con- – well, what does that do with anything? Like, why should the fact that the Almighty is smiting the Egyptians, why should that necessitate that the firstborn of the Jews, who weren't smitten, that they now belong to God? So there's an interesting idea here. First of all, um, Rashi says Rashi says that because the Almighty hit and struck the firstborn of the Egyptians – uh, these firstborn, they had to be protected. They had to be shielded. Why does the fact that the Almighty is striking the Egyptians mandate that the firstborn of the Jews needed to be shielded? So there's a, a an idea, we might have mentioned it, I don't remember if we did, uh, brought up by the Maharal, amongst others, that firstborn, they have a certain heightened spiritual acuity. They have a certain sensitivity to spiritual matters. The firstborn, the play of the firstborn, how, how did that work? It was a manifestation of God. You know, we we celebrate on the anniversary of the death of the firstborn is our Seder. Seder is exactly that night. Because what actually happened, it wasn't a destructive force per se. It was God's revealing a certain powerful spiritual force that whoever had the sensors, the antenna, to perceive that spiritual force was incinerated. So what happened actually what actually happened on the day of the, the, the plague of the firstborn was that God revealed himself, and the firstborn who are naturally more inclined to have spiritual sensitivities, they picked it up in it. They picked up in it and they couldn't handle it and they died. But the firstborn themselves, the Jews as well as the non-Jews, the, both of them really warranted to have suffered in this way, but the firstborn of the Jews were given an extra shield and extra protection and that's why they uh, were saved. And because the Almighty went out of his way to shield the, Jew, the, the firstborn of the Jews, he took, so to speak, an ownership stake in them and therefore, they were his. And now, if they're not going to be his, they're going to be free, free, free men. And we're going to replace them with the with the Levites. They have to transfer that over. Okay, so Moshe gets this whole instruction of what to do. He does it faithfully, and the Levites now finally become they become uh, they fully unleashed to do their tasks. They f- follow all these processes. They get shaken up in all different directions. They get purified. And verse 23 tells us, 24 that is, 
from 25 years of age and up, they join the Legion. So the, the, the term of the Levi begins at the age of 20, 25, and it continues until age 50 when they have mandatory retirement age. Now, it's actually curious because just last week we learned about the Levites. They start their work at the age 30, between 30 and 50. Now we're told it's between 25 and 50. Well, which one is it? Rashi tells us. At the age of 25, they become an, an apprentice. And they have spent five years learning all the details that they need to know to be custodians and stewards of the Mishkan. And after five years, they're ready and they're ready to join the ranks of people who are actually fulfilling their job. And Rashi adds an interesting statement that if a person does not learn after five years of study, they'll probably never learn. Uh, which I, I think that's probably that's that that's the you know that's the negative side. Well, well, what about the positive side? Let's say someone doesn't learn after a year. Or after a month, you know, we tend to get dejected. You know, I, I can't learn, can't study. It doesn't, it just, I just, I just can't. It just doesn't enter my head, or just in one ear, not the other. But here we see the Levites. Well, these are descendants of some of the great titans, Moshe and Aaron. Great people. Five years is a significant amount of time uh, to invest in in study. There's another curiosity here. Um, just going back a little bit, on verse 19. Just if you read the verse, you'll notice that it's repeating one term again and again. Uh, I assign the Levites to be presented to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to perform the service of the children of Israel in the tent of meeting and to provide atonement for the children of Israel so that there will be, not be a plague amongst the children of Israel when the children of Israel approach the sanctuary. It says the term children of Israel five times. Uh, and Rashi tells us, it says it five times to show that the Almighty has so much love for the Jewish people, he keeps on repeating it again and again. Uh, and additionally, it corresponds to the five books of the Torah. We know that there's Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, that's the Greek names or whatever, uh, Bracious. Shmos, in Hebrew. And it says in this verse that children of Israel five times, it corresponds to that. And it just shows the Almighty loves us. When when someone loves someone, they like to say their name a lot. That's just a, it's it's a sign of affection. But uh, my grandfather in his writing us all last night, he points out that the Talmud tells us that there's actually five parts of the soul. And when we look at a soul in totality, we look at the soul itself. It's a, it's a complete stature of a soul. But it's broken down to five parts. And the Torah, of course, the Torah, it has to be exactly five books and not four books and not six books. It's exactly five books because that's the Torah and its perfection. What we're being told here is that there's a mirror image here. The Jewish nation in its perfection com- is comprised of five. What five? The five as captured by the Torah – Five parts of the Torah and the five five parts of the soul. There's a certain perfection that we embody when we're doing what's right and when we're living in the kind of the right state that parallels the pure and perfect soul and parallels the pure and perfect Torah. Chapter 9 begins 
with the discussion of the Pesach offering in the wilderness. If you remember, Jewish people left in the middle of Nisan at the uh, um, a month and a half after they left Egypt, they settled down in the mountain of Sinai, around the mountain, and they were there for a long time. And now in this parasha, they're going to they're pack up and move elsewhere, ostensibly to Israel, though there's going to be some hiccups along the way. Now, at the anniversary of Pesach, so they celebrate Pesach again. And we know that there is a mitzvah to celebrate Pesach on the 15th day of Nisan, seven days for the rest of time. In, verse, in chapter 9, it is an instruction on the second year of the Exodus, in the first month, which is Nisan, they should celebrate the Pesach and the Pesach offering and do it with perfection. Now, what's interesting is that this does seem to be out of place. Uh, Rashi tells us that chronologically, this should have been before all the other events that we talked about. This should have been at the beginning of the Book of Numbers. Why was it delayed until chapter 9? We know the Torah is not necessarily chronological, but it's going only going to alter the chronology if there's an important reason to do that. So why is it delayed till chapter 9? Because this is something shameful. There's a shameful episode in this narrative because this was the only Pesach offering that the Jewish people brought in the wilderness for the ensuing 39 years until they got to Israel. They did not bring the Pesach offering. And therefore, the Torah wants to kind of, you know, it's like when someone writes a Torah scroll. What they actually do, the Torah scroll does not need to be written sequentially. So what scribes do is they start from somewhere in the middle. Because when someone inspects the Torah scroll to see how it looks, they go to the beginning and look at it and look at it and go to the end. And... The scribe wants to get in a nice groove of writing to get used to the size and the font and the feel of a certain scroll. And therefore, they start in the middle. And if it's sloppier, let that be in the middle. Uh, and I think that's kind of a similar way. And the Torah does not need to be written in order as opposed to, let's say, a mezuzah. You want to buy a mezuzah from a reputable scribe because a mezuzah has to be written in order. If, it's, if, if, it's, if there's a mistake, you can't fix it. You have to scrap it. Uh, therefore, uh, there's an incentive for someone to cheat and lie a scribe, and therefore you, you want to buy from a reputable scribe. But Torah scroll does not need to be written in order. If, 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 if the Torah is going to speak about something negative, something shameful about the Jewish people, it's going to wait till chapter 9, not the beginning of the, of the book. People want to read the beginning of the book, maybe more inspirational stuff, more positivity. And, and the obvious question is, they had Moshe, of course, for the 39 years. And if they didn't do the offering, Moshe obviously signed off on it. So it must have been proper for them not to do it. They did it only once, and then they, they withheld from doing it until they got to Israel 39 years later. So if it happened because that was the proper thing to do, why is that uh, Why is that negative? So my grandfather, he asked the same question. And he said that, yeah, sure. They didn't do it because Moshe told them. God told Moshe not to do them. But why did God tell Moshe that they should not do it? Because they weren't worthy of doing it. So the underlying reason of why the Jewish people withheld from doing the Pesach offering until they got to Israel was one that was shameful, and therefore the nation wasn't holding 
with the proper stature of doing it in the wilderness outside of Israel, and therefore they uh, that is something negative, and therefore wait till to, to speak about it. Now, um, there's another interesting law here regarding Pesach called Pesach Sheni. We know that in order to give a to Pesach offering, you have to be ritually pure. What if someone's not ritually pure? They happen to get unlucky. Someone, God forbid, dies uh, two days before Pesach. They don't have enough time to become pure for Pesach. And they really want to do the Pesach offering, but they can't. So during this second year, there were people that came to Moshe. They said to them, we became impure because we came in contact with dead people. And we really want to do the Pesach. Is there any other fallback? Is there is there a replacement day? Is there a rainout date for the Pesach? So Moshe says, good question. Let, wait over here. And I'll ask I'll ask God. And Hashem tells Moshe, tell the Jewish people, when someone is impure or someone is traveling, someone can't get to Jerusalem to bring to, to the temple, to the Mishnah, to bring the sacrifice, we're going to have a replacement date a month later. On the second month, on the 14th day, which is the first month on the 14th day is when normally Pesach is. Pesach Sheni is exactly a month later. On the second month, on day 14, and they should do the Pesach offering then. There's an interesting Rashi here that, that Rashi kind of looks at how the story is presented. There's a bunch of people that come to Moshe with a claim. Is it possible for you to find some sort of carve out for us? Uh, Rashi tells us that really this halacha, that was bound to be told anyhow. The halacha of Pesach Sheni was bound to be told anyhow. And it was going to be told in the same format that's always told. God tells Moshe, tell the Jewish people X, Y, and Z. It gives us this preamble to say that there's people who have an eternal merit that there was a section of Torah said to them because they were the ones who were trying to do mitzvos. Because they were meritorious, they were righteous in trying to find a way to do a mitzvah. They, they, they were so disappointed that they couldn't do a mitzvah. And they said, Moshe, is there something you can talk about? Is, is there some sort of solution for our predicament, because those people were yearning to do mitzvahs, therefore the Torah attributes this mitzvah, this section to them, to give them a kudos for those who are seeking to do righteous, they get a uh, um, legacy to have a section of the Torah written uh, in response to them. And uh, verse 15 to, uh, finally deals where, you know, where we seem to be kind of wrapping up the process of the finalization of the of, of the inauguration of the Mishkan, and there was a cloud above the Mishkan at, during the day, and there was a fire above it at night, and that's the way it always was, a fire, uh, during the, uh, a cloud in the day, and a fire at night, and when the cloud would lift, or the fire would lift, that would indicate it's time to move. And that's the next section is going to be about how the Jews traveled, because there wasn't exactly an itinerary. We're going to go here, we're going to stop, we're going to settle down for four days. It, it was all up to God, and the people had to become conditioned to just follow what the Almighty says and kind of lose their sense of control that the Almighty is going to be the one who decides when they move and how long they stay, and the people are subject to that. But just a note here on the cloud and the fire. There is a really striking Talmud that says that at the funeral 
of a tzaddik, not only a regular tzaddik, but the greatest tzaddik of the generation, the greatest righteous person of the generation, there's a pillar of fire. That's what it says. Now, the problem is most people don't see it. There's a story when Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, he's one of the greats of the 16th century of Tzfat, when he died, uh, and the he was really close to the Arizal. And by his funeral, the Arizal asked all his students, what do you see? And all of them said, we don't see anything. And there was one student that said, I see a pillar of fire. So he said, oh, someone else sees what I see. Uh, because halacha is, at a funeral of a, of a, of a god al-ador, of a great leader of a generation, there's a pillar of fire. That's just the way it is. The problem is, is you might not see it. It's a spiritual pillar of fire. And therefore, only the people that have the spiritual tools, the spiritual eyeballs, can see it. I would surmise that this pillar of fire and pillar of smoke, cloud of smoke, that would not be visible to us. If we were somehow magically transported 3,329 years in the past, and we joined the camp of Israel, unless the people were qualified to see this spiritual fire and smoke, they wouldn't actually be able to see it. This wasn't a physical fire or physical smoke. It was something spiritual, and therefore... To access spiritual, you have to have the spiritual tools. And, um, you know, maybe that's what Torah is about. They're trying to give us those spiritual tools to access the spiritual world. So verse 17, whenever the cloud was lifted from atop the mountain, afterward the children of Israel would journey, and the place where the cloud would rest, there the children of Israel would encamp. And the next section is going to talk about how they broke camp, and they had trumpets, and they had to move, and they wouldn't know where they're going, and they just follow God. Uh, verse 18 says, According to the word of Hashem, where the children of Israel journey, according to the word of, the, uh, of Hashem, where they encamp, all the days that the cloud would rest upon the tabernacle, they would encamp. When the cloud lingered upon the tabernacle many days, the children of Israel would remain. Uh, and sometimes it would they stay for a few days, sometimes they stay for a long time, sometimes they would stay... The cloud remained from evening until morning, and the cloud would be lifted. It was a very hectic schedule. And I spoke to someone yesterday. Um, he's considering driving to to New York in the summer. I'm an expert at that. So I said to Tom, I'm the guy to talk to. We do it every year. So he's like, well, I was thinking to uh, drive for six hours and then stop and then drive the next day for another six hours. He says, no, that's a big mistake. You have to get it over as fast as you can. Sw- <laughs> swallow the bitter pill. Because you'll go nuts three, four days in the car. You go crazy with kids. That's what I told them. But I was thinking, like, imagine you had to drive from here to Canada. And you were driving, you were stopping, and you were stopping sometimes. You don't know. You get, you, you stop, and, and okay, we're in Texas, Canada, we're stopping. You know, Are you stopping for an hour? Are you stopping for a month? What, what do you get at? What do you unpack? You know, how do you, should you pitch your tent here? Like, are we here to stay? Is it permanent? You don't know. Sometimes it could be two days, two hours. Sometimes it could be traveling for days. Sometimes he's stopping for a whole year and a half. Who knows? And think about what that does to a person. It's 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 painful. Uh, but this is all a lesson in learning to rely on God. When God tells you to go, you go. When God tells you to stop, you stop. And even if a place is not necessarily so favorable, 
uh, both for physical and, and spiritual reasons. We know that the, the Torah tells us that Israel is the most auspicious venue for spiritual activities. Every place in the world has, of course, its, its physical characteristics and its spiritual characteristics. Some places are better than others. So sometimes they would stop in a swamp. This is where we're stopping. But you know what? God said stop and we stop. And we're just hoping we'll leave tomorrow and days drag on. And we have to learn to kind of suffer and bear the place that we're stopping because God wants us to stop here and here specifically. And when he wants us to leave, he'll let us leave. And then we stop at this lovely, luscious oasis. And the kids are swimming in the in the brook. And like, well, this is a good place. Let's stop here. And then a day later, boom, you're out. Middle of the night, everyone pack your beds, wake the kids up. Let's go. We're going. The, the, the fire left. We're following it. And that's about whenever God says you stop, you stop. Whenever God says you uh, go, you go. And that, of course, is part of the education that uh, is embodied by this entire process of traveling and indeed the whole broader 40 years in the desert is preparing the nation for life under God. And Hashem tells Moshe, make these trumpets and each trumpet, they, they have these uh, sounds, there's long sounds, short sounds, one sound, two sound, all of them to give messages if you want to gather all the people together, if you want to gather just the uh, Nassim, just the, the heads of the tribe, you want to travel, you want to stop. They have these trumpets that make uh, these noises. And in fact, even in the temple, they would, even in the temple, they would uh, use trumpets together with chauffeurs for various different processes. Now, uh, there's a, the Ramban here, when he talks about the trumpets, he invokes the episode in the book of Joshua about the walls of Jericho. We know that though Jericho is one of the first battles that Joshua, at the helm of leadership of the people, he undertook. And they blew the chauffeur seven times, seven days, and they walked around the walls, and the walls collapsed. And I think the idea being here is that the power of a chauffeur, we know, of course, it's the mitzvah, Rosh Hashanah is a chauffeur, but the power of chauffeur is captured by the walls of Jericho being destroyed. The idea, the power of the chauffeur is to break barriers. And on Rosh Hashanah is the day that we want to break barriers between us and God. We know a sin creates a barrier between man and God. And the, the, the hope of the holiday of Rosh Hashanah is to break those barriers. And the tool that we use to do that is a chauffeur. And the details in uh, chapter 10 from verses 10 till 28, uh, the various processes of which camp goes first. Uh, first, there's the, um, uh, the, 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 the one group and then the next group and the middle group and this, uh, all the various different encampments when they journey. What's the process? Who goes first? Who goes second? And the last one to go was the tribe of Dun. They were the ones who were in charge of the lost and found. Uh, verse 25, then journeyed on the banner of the camp of the tribe, children of Dan, the rear guard of all, guard of all the camps, according to the legions. Rashi says what they do, they would uh, gather all the lost and found and find it. And then next time they camp, oh, I'm missing my s- slippers or I'm missing my baseball cards. And then we'll go to the tribe of Dan to pick up their stuff. Now, there's an episode here where Moshe's talking to his father-in-law. The Jewish people, they start traveling. And Yisro, Jethro, has been, then, been with them for a whole year, essentially. 
And he sees the nation packing their bags, and he says, you know what, I'm going to go back home as well. And Moshe begins to say, no, come with us, come with us. You, you, we love you so much. Please stay with us. And eventually he agrees to stay with them. But it's interesting here. The name that Yisro is given is Chovev. And the Talmud tells us that Yisro is actually given seven different names. Now, why is Yisro given so many names? We know we know it's talking about Yisro. It's talking about the father of Moshe. It's the same guy um, from Midian. We know it's the same person, but it clearly changes his name. The Rashi tells us that Yisro was called uh, Reuel, and uh, he was called Chovev, and he had many different names. But Yisro, the reason, the reason, the reason why I was called Yisro, the word Yisro means Yoter, means to add, because he added a section of the Torah. We know that Yisro had his, when he came, he was restructuring the process of judicial inquiry, and therefore because he added a portion of the Torah, he was added a name. And the reason why he was called Chovev, Chovev means beloved, because he beloved, he loved the Torah. That's what he says. And, uh, of course, this doesn't, you know, because someone accomplishes something, it doesn't mean that we should change their name. I think that this is precisely the lesson uh, of names in Torah literature. A name is always going to capture what a person has accomplished. And the great people, they may have multiple, Moshe, I think, has given 10 different names because he had so much accomplishment, his potential that he had within him was actualized. And therefore, every actualization of potential, he was added a name. We see the Torah is obsessed with the idea of names and changing people's names. Abraham is Abraham. Sarai is, is Sarah. Hoshea becomes Yehoshua. Moshe has many names. Yisrael has many names. The great people have great accomplishments. Jacob has added a name to him. Jacob becomes Israel. And the idea being is that when someone has fulfillment, completion of duty, they're given an, an additional name. There is a scary, maybe even terrifying, Kabbalistic source that talks about what happens after someone dies. After someone dies, there's three angels that come three terrifying angels that one of them is holding a, a metal chain. And they ask him, what is your name? They ask the dead person, what's your name? And the person says, I don't know what my name is. And they start hitting him. That's what the Kabbalistic source says. And of course, it doesn't mean there's no their, their name, their given name, or their, <laughs> you know, their legal name. It means, what did you accomplish? Did you actualize your potential? Did you take what you had within you, the power of your soul, and bring it forth. That is what we mean when we say name. And it's, of course, very terrifying for someone who lived a whole life, who doesn't, isn't able to get down, to boil down to their essence and find the unique power that the Almighty gave them to affect themselves and their, and their world. Uh, and that is captured by the fact that they, they don't have, they don't know their name. Yisro is someone who's given multiple names because his accomplishments are as diverse as his names. Uh, in verse 35, there is this really strange thing you actually see in the Torah scroll. It has upside-down nuns. Uh, there's a break over here. And Rashi tells us, the Talmud tells us, you look in the Torah scroll, you'll see it, that there was a certain sin the Jewish people just did, and there's sins that they're about to do, and they might have wanted to interrupt the sins, uh, so they shouldn't have three consecutive sins. What's the first sin? The first sin is when they left Sinai. Now they're finally leaving Sinai. They left Sinai like a kid who runs out of class, 
when the bell rings. People are so excited, so relieved to finally leave the school. They're so sick and tired of learning. Their brain is hurting. They want to just escape. That's why the Jewish people were, when they left Sinai, they left with such excitement and joy uh, that they that is considered a sin. And in order to not have the sins come in rapid succession, the Torah breaks it up by putting these upside-down knowns and telling us essentially that this middle section, these two verses, really revert back to the beginning of numbers. They really should appear 50 subsections of Torah earlier, and that's why there's nuns. Nun is the numeric value of 50, and therefore 50 sections earlier is where this place is more appropriate. They might have took it from there, transported here, in order to provide a break between the uh, the sins of the Jewish people. They leave, and right away the problems start. Uh, they start complaining. In, in chapter 11, they start complaining, and the Almighty gets very disappointed with them, and there's a fire coming out from Hashem that starts consuming them. People cry to Moshe, just like when you have a king who has a son, Rashi tells us, a son who gets on the bad side of the king. The son will go to the king's trusted advisor, close confidant, and tell him, please intercede on my behalf with the king. So too, Jewish people get into trouble, get into hot water, they run away, or they run quickly to Moshe, and they tell him, please intercede upon uh, our behalf that the Almighty should not uh, get too angry with us. So that's the first sin. The fin- they start complaining. They're just looking. They're malcontents. They're looking to find complaints. And in verse 4, they start, they found the thing that they could actually complain about. As shocking as that sounds, it's to complain about the manna. They've been eating manna since before they got to Sinai. A couple of weeks after they left Egypt, they were eating matzah for a couple of weeks that they had baked when they were leaving. And afterwards, they were hungry. Ken went to Moshe. What are we going to do? We're all going to die. Moshe prays to God. God says, I'll give you manna from heaven. And they've been consuming that for a year. And they're kind of sick of the menu. They want some more diversity. They want more meat. And they, they talk about the onions and the garlic and the pickles and all the things that they used to have and the fish. And it was so delicious. And now they're so sick with the manna. The manna is dry. The manna is boring. The manna is not uh Articulating or sizzling enough for their palates. And they really, they were complaining they wanted to eat meat, but they had plenty of meat of their own. They just wanted it for free. And they wanted got to do some sort of miracle to give them the meat for free. And they start complaining. Um, and so first of all, it's, it's interesting. In verse 4, it says that the rabble, the uh, asaf-saf, the asaf-suf, which is the... The riffraff, the riffraff or the rabble. Who's that referring to? That's referring to the Erevraff, to the Egyptians that joined the Jewish people on their exodus. These people were the same people that Joseph had circumcised hundreds of years earlier. They were moved by Joseph and his lessons and his teachings. They separated themselves as a subsection of the Egyptians. They didn't intermarry with the rest of the Egyptians. And therefore, they became kind of uh, people that were influenced, non like, modern day Noahides, basically, or ancient Noahides. And therefore, when the Jewish people left Egypt, they joined. And Moshe agreed to allow them to join. But the thing is, is that they indeed did a major step of commitment to go join the Jewish nation, fleeing from Egypt into the wilderness, into the unknown, without really a plan except for God. And that was amazing. Amazing inspiration 
But we see the inspiration now. It's a year, a year later. There are a bunch of Jewish people. They're eating the manna and they're getting sick and tired of it. And what this demonstrates is that even when someone has an inspiration and takes action upon it, there's this final step to forge ahead against the final resistance stopping you from reaching, so to speak, the promised land. And that's where they faltered. Uh, they, they wanted to leave Egypt. They didn't need to leave Egypt, but they chose to do so. But we see that they, they tripped up when the going got a little bit tougher and they uh, couldn't cross the finish line. Uh, the Chazonish said, for example, that crossing the finish line we know is the hardest thing to do. Uh, you want to finish a book of Talmud, that's a monumental accomplishment. But you know which two pages are going to be the hardest? The last two. The Mishnah tells us in the, in the, in the, in the chapters of the fathers that we have to be, uh, us kind of brazen like a leopard. Uh, we have to be rutz katsvi, a kal kanesha would be light like a, like an eagle, as swift as a deer, and as mighty as a lion to accomplish anything. The last stage of any great accomplishment is where the Yetzirah is going to put up the most resistance and you need to be like a veritable lion to forge your way through the resistance. That is what they lacked and therefore they had problems. And they said, who's going to give us meat? We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt free of charge. Cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Really strange menu that they wanted. So first of all, what does it mean the fish they ate for free? Well, they didn't get even free hay to make cement. How to they get free fish? So Rashi tells us this was not free. It was free of mitzvos. In Egypt, they didn't need to think what they need to say before they eat. Chomp it down. I know my kids, uh, my kids already developed the resistance to washing. Right, you have a bread meal. There's hassles. You got to do mitzvos, right? You got to wash your hands. You got to say the blessing, hamotzi. You got to say the after blessing, but it's kind of lengthy. And like if there's the options, they're always going to go for the thing that's not going to force them to do that. Because mitzvah so hard. Ah, what's the big deal? You say a blessing, wash your hands. You say another blessing, it's two or three minutes, no big deal. But yes, like any friction is friction and it's a problem. The people were not complaining that they had free food. It was free without or to remember all these copious details of doing a mitzvah. Now, why specifically did they pick on cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic of all the things to pick on? So Rashi tells us, according to the Talmud and Yuma, that the manna was magical spiritual food. The problem with it is that you have to think a lot. It's kind of the spiritual thing. There's nothing no, you can't take any spiritual activity resting on an armchair or resting on a beach chair. It's always active. You have to kind of be sit by the table, so to speak. But it was very powerful. And the power of the food of the manna was that you could think about any food that you want and you were given the taste of that food, according to one opinion, the texture of the food as well, according to second opinion. Amazing. You want pizza all the time. Amazing. And you eat the manna and the manna was also magical in the fact that it only gave you exactly what you need, nothing extra. So they didn't need to go to the bathroom. So for a whole year, uh, to not have a, um, a trip to the restroom, they're saying, wait a minute, this is not normal. We're going to explode. So they have all these problems. Now, why specifically these foods? So Talmud tells us that these are the only foods that are harmful to pregnant women. And therefore, the Almighty said there are certain tastes that are locked out of the manna. These you can't have. 
Everything else you get half, not these. And therefore, they, they were able to find the mole, so to speak, of this great miracle, the manna. They're parched. They're so sick of it. And they can't get the taste of the leeks and the melons and the onions and the garlic and the cucumbers. Now, verse 7 interjects with the Torah describing what the manna was. Manna was like this coriander seed. The color, like the color of a bedolach. Bedolach seems to be a crystal of some sort. The people would gather it. They would grind it. They make it like it would. They make it into cakes. It tastes like dough kneaded with oil. It was magnificent. It was delicious. It was free. It it just parachuted to your door. Unbelievable. And yet these people found a way to rebel against it. It's possible that they deliberately did this. This is just hold hold this thought for a second. We know with Adam and Eve, the sin, they deliberately chose to have Yetzirah because they wanted to have the test. There are those that have suggested that in a similar way, in paradise, paradise of the Garden of Eden with with respect to Adam and paradise with regards to manna, magical food that tastes like anything, in paradise, people sometimes feel like they're not challenged enough. And therefore, they said, you know what? We want to go back to kind of the base physical foods that provides all these challenges for us. Uh, and therefore, they said, give us give us meat. Give, we want to have that kind of juicy meat that will provide a counterweight for our spiritual greatness that we could fight against. The problem with that is, is that we don't necessarily – we don't – we – there is a – the philosophy is to resist – temptation, but also to not bring temptation upon yourself. Don't try to say, you sh- give me a temptation so I can fight it, because you know what? You may get what you want, the temptation, and you may not be able to fight it. Moshe, he's showing despair. He complains to God, how come I am in charge of this nation myself? I'm like a mother. I didn't bear these children, but I have to take care of them like a like a mother holding the child. Um and now they're complaining. So God says, you know what? We're going to have the Sanhedrin. This is where the formation of the Sanhedrin gets 70 people, 70 elders of the Jewish people. They're going to help you lead, lead the people, lead the nation. Um, and who were these members of the Sanhedrin? They were uh, peop- They were the Jewish policemen who refused – to punish the Jews in Egypt and were beaten by the Egyptians. Therefore, there were the people who had already demonstrated uh, self-sacrifice for the nation and therefore they merited to become part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Jewish people were given the meat so much until it became nauseating to them. And there's a certain degree of uh, lust that goes overboard, that causes a certain uh, just nauseating repulsion from the thing that you were so coveting earlier and the people eating them and the ones that kickstarted this rebellion, they died and the ones that followed the rebellion died after a month. Now, next stage. So what happened? Moshe says, God tells Moshe, I'm going to give you Sanhedrin. You have 70 uh, compatriots, uh, 70 helpers who are going to help you lead the nation. Now, how many tribes are there? There's 12 tribes. So each tribe is going to contribute six towards the 70, 
but there's going to be one tribe that's going to have two missing, right? Or there's two tribes that have only five. And every tribe is going to say, well, give us six and let someone else have five. So what Moshe did is Moshe gathered 72 candidates and put 72 pieces of paper. On 70 of them, it says, you remember the Sanhedrin? Two of them was blank. And he put them in and 70 of them, everyone's going to come pick their lots. So he gathered the 72 people and each one's going to pick and that way we see it's God deciding, not me. Now Moshe can't blame him. Can't blame him. There were two people, very special people, Eldad and Medad, who were part of these candidates, but they were so convinced, they were so humble, they were convinced that they would be the ones who were given blank pages. There's no way that they're the top 70 people amongst the nation. And therefore, they didn't even join the 70 of their friends to, or 70 of their colleagues to be by the drawing of the lot. They said, ah, for sure, for sure we're not there. So now Moshe draws the lots and everyone comes and picks a, a, a card out of the hat and two people picked up blank cards. So what does that mean? Eldad and Medad, those people who are still in the camp, they are right away part of the Sanhedrin. And instantly they start prophesizing because what God tells Moshe, I'm going to take a little bit of your greatness and grandeur and I'm going to spread it out to these 70 people. And all these seven people start prophesying. But all of them, or at least 68 of them, are away with Moshe by this lot drawing. Whereas Eldon and Medad are in the camp and they start prophesying. And everyone's there listening to them and they start saying, Moshe's going to die. We're not going to go into Remember, these people, are they're convinced that a few days now they're going into Israel and that's it. And they start saying, no, no, no. They, people start prophesying. Moshe's going to die. Joshua is going to bring us into Israel. And Joshua freaks out and runs to Moshe. There's two people prophesying in the camp. And they're saying you're going to die and get rid of them. Destroy them. Incinerate them. Which Rashi, by the way, Talmud tells us means give them a lot of responsibilities. You know why? Because if they have so many communal responsibilities, there's no way they could possibly have time for prophecy. And Moshe says to them, no, no, no. If only the whole nation would be prophesying. Don't worry about my honor. You worry about my honor, don't worry about it. Let, uh, I'm very happy that there's more, let, let there be even more prophets amongst the nation. That's even better. Now, what happens? Sipporah, she hears this commotion, Moshe's wife. She hears this commotion. There's two people prophesizing in the camp. She runs over and she sees two people prophesizing. She starts saying, Oyve, what's going to happen to their wives? Their wives are going to suffer the same fate that I suffered. When my husband started prophesizing, he abstained from me. He withdrew from me. Now it's going to happen to them. So she starts kind of kibitzing with all her lady friends about this. And Moshe and, Ar- and Miriam and Aaron, they hear this and they say, what, what, what happened? Moshe did what? This is all news to them. Moshe, with- Moshe withdrew from his wife after Sinai. But why? We were prophets. He was prophets. How come, we- how come he withdrew from his wife and not us? And that's the... Uh, that's the uh, event that happens at the end of the Parsha where Miriam and Aaron, they speak negatively about Moshe. They compare themselves to Moshe. We're in the same plane. Moshe prophesied. We prophesied. Why is he any better than us? And the Torah goes uh, out of its way to show the Moshe indeed is qualitatively different than all other prophets and certainly Miriam and Aaron. Uh, or including Miriam and Aaron, who were prophets, but not on the same level. And it testifies that Moshe was the most humble person that has ever lived on the face of the earth. 
They get called out. They both get, according to some opinions, both Miriam and Aaron receive leprosy. And uh, according to others, it's just Miriam. Uh, Moshe starts praying for them. And let her not be like a corpse. She gets healed. But to show that God doesn't have any favoritism, she still has to spend the seven days outside of the camp like a Mitzorah. She's quarantined outside the camp for seven days. And even though the nation is ready to leave, to travel, they wait for Miriam until she's finished. Because Miriam, when she was but a little girl, she waited a few minutes with Moshe when Moshe was in a box floating on the Nile. Therefore, in that merit of her waiting a few minutes for Moshe, as an adult, an entire nation will wait for seven days for her. Uh, and thus concludes the Parsha. After she got well, they traveled to Chatzero, from Chatzeros and they settled in the land of Paran. They are now under the impression they're about to enter the land of Israel. And of course, next week we'll see that really it did not work as planned.